Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 76, which means that we are over halfway now in our project of preaching through all 150 psalms. This Sunday completes our eighth summer in the Psalter. Uh, We've been preaching consecutively through the psalms for three months each summer since 2016. Uh, Next week, we'll begin a new sermon series for the fall on the uh, book of uh, Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Um, But Lord willing, next June, we will come back to the Psalms and pick up with Psalm 77. As we close out our time in the Psalms this summer, I um, just want to give a brief uh, commendation and even testimony about the Psalms in my life. It was probably about 12 years ago that I began to put praying the Psalms at the center of my devotional life with God, um, a regular and central practice of that life. Since that time, I've prayed through the Psalter as a whole many times, psalm by psalm, and it has, friends, absolutely changed me completely. I'm a different person now today than I was, a different pastor, a different husband and father than I was 12 years ago because of the ways that the Psalms have shaped me in that time. And that's what God's Word is supposed to do, by the way. It's supposed to shape us and change us. The Psalms, in particular, as I've prayed them, have taught me to hope. They've taught me to lament, to bring my sorrows and sadnesses before God. The Psalms have taught me to long for true justice, the justice that only God can bring. And what it means to pray for God, to judge the wicked and destroy evil, to long for that. The Psalms have taught me to be persistent in prayer, to continue to petition God even when he has not apparently answered my prayers. The Psalms have taught me to praise God in all circumstances. The Psalms have taught me what it means to abide with Jesus as I pray with him the same prayers that he prayed on earth and that he now prays today in heaven. The Psalms have taught me wisdom, what it means to better love God and what God loves and to hate the things that God hates. The Psalms have taught me to long for the resurrection of the dead and not to be afraid of death, to not fear my death or the death of anyone that I love. The Psalms have expanded my imagination for the glorious possibilities of the Christian life. They have, in the deepest sense possible, enlarged my soul. Now, the weakness of the American church today, I think, is undebatable. There are a hundred examples of this reality. But I am convinced that one of the primary reasons for the weakness of the modern church in our time is that God, in his wisdom and kindness, has given us a prayer book. And for the most part, the modern church in the West does not use it. Does not use it. A few psalms, maybe, are important in the life of the modern church in the West, but not 90% of the Psalter or more. It's hardly even heard of, most of the crannies and nooks of the Psalter. And because the prayers of the modern church are not fundamentally shaped by the prayer book that God has given them, our prayers, 
as the modern church, are often weak and insipid and shallow. And generally speaking, the same is true for our faith and our obedience. Now, I am not responsible for the church at large in the West or in the United States, thanks be to God, but as far as our church is concerned, it is one of my deepest desires for us to be different in this way, for us to be an exception to the rule, for us in the years that we have before us to continue more and more to become experts on the Psalms. I want us to know the Psalms better for us not only to pray them and preach them and sing them on Sunday mornings, which we will do, but for the Psalms to form the center of our personal spiritual lives throughout the week as well. And so, beloved, I commend to you today the Psalms. Each of you possess in your Bibles multiple copies, probably at home, the only book you'll ever need on spirituality and prayer. Really, truly. God in his love and mercy and wisdom has given you the Psalms. And so as we conclude another summer in the Psalter, I simply encourage you to put into practice what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. Please, I encourage you, pray the Psalms. Use them. Pray them in your homes. Pray them in your personal life. Pray them before your meals or after. Pray them on your commute. Pray them in the morning when you wake. Pray them before bed. It doesn't matter. Pray them in the night when you can't sleep. A simple way for you to begin to use the Psalms is to use the daily readings that our church publishes each month. Every day of the year, we assign one to three Psalms, depending on their length, taking us through the whole Psalter about five times in a year. And so I would just say, start there, if this is a practice that is unfamiliar to you. Just pray those daily psalms. Don't just read them silently in your head, to be clear. That's not what I'm recommending, although if you need to start there, that's fine. What I'm recommending is actually speaking them out loud to God, articulating them verbally as prayers to your Father. It won't take that long. You can pray them once in the morning, once in the evening. Or even better, come sometime to morning prayer on Wednesday or Friday mornings, and we'll pray the psalms for the day together as a church. But I promise you, if you do this, if you begin to pray the Psalms, and the the whole Psalms, the whole Psalter, not just two or three that you might gravitate towards, if you begin to pray all the Psalms in this way, the Spirit of God really truly will use these ancient words to transform you more and more into the image of the Son of God. This is how Christian spirituality works. The scriptures form us into the one they are about. With this context in mind, I invite you now, friends, to listen to God's holy and inerrant word from Psalm 76, which is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold, I tell you more precious than fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. I invite you to listen to it now. Psalm 76, to the choirmaster with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. 
In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to Yahweh your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us now by your spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Beloved, you are safe with God, completely safe with him, completely protected. Now, this does not mean, to be clear, that terrible things, even death itself, will not happen to you. They will. But still, you are safe with God. For there is no act of human violence, no attack of Satan, no threat of wickedness, not even death itself. None of these things can defeat God's power and God's love, and God's deliverance of you. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just in case anyone thought there was a loophole, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason Paul can make that kind of declaration, that kind of almost absurd promise of God's protection, is because he knows that the power of any created thing is nothing 
compared to the power of God, and that God has committed himself to us, to you, to me, to the apostle, completely and utterly in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, beloved, you are safe with God. You are. Our shorter catechism declares that we're safe with God because Jesus is our King. And as our King, He subdues us to Himself, the catechism says. He rules over us and defends us. And He also restrains and conquers all His enemies and ours as well. This is what God has promised to do for us. The reason we are safe with God is because God himself has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as our king, watches over us all the days of our life. We belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death. And even when we go into our graves, Jesus continues to watch over us there. He does not abandon us. He keeps us safe even in the grave from our enemies. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 76, is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. But what the psalmist is giving thanks for is maybe not something that would immediately come to mind for us. He's giving thanks for God's power, for God's might, for even for God's anger, God's fury and wrath as he fights for his people and delivers them from evil. The psalm begins in this way, in verses 1 and 2, it says, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, which is a shortened way of saying Jerusalem, which is also the Salem, the Hebrew word for peace. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. God has drawn near to his people, the psalmist is saying. He has established himself with them. He dwells among them. But what's interesting about verse 2, the Hebrew words, therefore, abode and dwelling place, are not the normal words that we would see. They're not just the generic words in Hebrew for where someone lives or has established their dwelling place. They're actually two very rarely used words in the Old Testament, which mean a dwelling place of a wild beast. In particular, the dwelling place of a lion is how these words are used elsewhere in the Old Testament. More literally, verse 2 can be translated like this. God's lair has been established in Salem. God's den in Zion. You see, the image this psalm is giving us is of the Lord being personified as a lion who has established himself in Jerusalem. These are his hunting grounds. This is where he lives. This is his domain, living among his people. I think that's a fascinating image to think about and consider for the Lord. Right? The Lord is saying he is among his people as a, as a lion, as a beast, as a predator, mighty and powerful and dangerous to his enemies. And do you know what happens when you attack a lion in his den, right? When you go into his turf, he responds with wrath and fury, right? He protects his ground. And that's just what verses 3 to 6 
are describing. There, the psalmist says, that is, at Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, he, the Lord, broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, he says to God, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains, and when the Assyrians came, they were in those mountains, they were full of prey. Glorious are you, the psalmist says. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They came with the, the spoil that they had won from other nations. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. Right? They were paralyzed. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. What these verses are describing is the time when the Lord fought for his people and completely destroyed the most powerful army in the ancient world at that time. It's a story that's so important, it's actually recorded in three different places in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 32, which we heard already this morning, and also longer versions of the same story in 2 Kings 18-19 and also in Isaiah 36 and 37. The story is this. Around 690 BC, Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, besieged Jerusalem and meant to bring about its total destruction. And there is lots of extra biblical evidence for this reality. It's not just in the scriptures that we read about this event. About 30 years before, in 722, the Assyrian armies had utterly destroyed the northern kingdom. They had gone to Samaria and destroyed and carried into slavery the northern tribes of Israel, those tribes that had rebelled against the line of David and set up their own kingdom away from Jerusalem. And, he, and, and, and the Assyrians had done this same thing all over the ancient Near East. They ruled with a mighty and vicious hand. They were undefeated, so to speak. And now Sennacherib comes to Jerusalem to do the same thing there. The Assyrians, to be clear, were absolutely without equal in this period of the ancient world in terms of their military power and their cruelty. They were basically invincible at the time. And they weren't just strong militarily. The Assyrians' brutality in torturing and killing their enemies was extreme, even by the standards of the time. You see, their armies, after taking a city, would engage in truly horrifying acts of violence. And this was encouraged by their military leaders. It was a kind of uh, psychological warfare, is what we'd call it today, communicating to all their enemies that if you don't submit to us and surrender, this is what will happen to you. And when Sennacherib assembled his armies outside Jerusalem, he mocks Israel's God. He uses that terrible reputation to demand the surrender of the city. He says, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the land? And were the gods of the nations of those lands able to deliver their lands from me? How much less, Sennacherib says, will your God deliver you? Out of my hand. Now, the terror of this moment in history for the people of Judah must have been overwhelming, right? You're in the city, you're cut off, no supplies are getting in, and there 
are thousands and thousands of armed warriors around you who have just leveled cities and done terrible, terrible things to the people they've conquered. The people in Jerusalem knew if the Assyrians breached their walls, it would mean torture and death and slavery for everyone who lived there. There were no innocents in the ancient world, right? No civilians. But as the scripture tells us, on this occasion, the Lord himself fought for his people. His anger was aroused by the threat against Jerusalem and against his den, his lair. And he rose up in fury and in power to destroy on a single night the most powerful army in the world. It's fascinating. There is, again, extra biblical evidence for Assyria suffering a great defeat at Jerusalem, but there's no explanation for it. Modern scholars try to say, well, maybe there was a plague or dysentery or some sort of thing that wiped out a large portion of their army. That's why they could not conquer Jerusalem, and Sennacherib had to go back um, to um, Nineveh, where he at his capital. But 2 Kings tells us what actually happened. That that night, as the Assyrians were sleeping, the angel of the Lord, which I would suggest is a common way of referring to the way that our Lord Jesus Christ comes to his people before his incarnation, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians. Think about it for a moment, right? In one night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed almost 200,000 warriors. The devastation and ruin around Jerusalem must have been astounding. Corpses everywhere put to death by the angel of the Lord, bringing the justice of God. Their army was completely destroyed. Their power was utterly broken. Sennacherib fled back to his home in shame and was later murdered by his own sons. That's what happened to him when he threatened the people of God. Like a lion rising out of its den, the God of Israel turned on the Assyrians and slew them. And beloved, this is the God who fights for you. This is your king. This is what it means to be under his protection. This is why you are safe. Because your God is more powerful than anything else in the world that might seem to threaten you, that might frighten you. The rest of the psalm, verses 7 to 12, the second half, revels in the power and the wrath of Israel's God. Listen to the psalmist, he says, and he invites us to say with him. He says to God, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man, the psalmist says, shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. And then the psalmist says to all of us, Make your vows to Yahweh your God and perform them. Keep them, he says. Make vows to him 
and keep those vows. And let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. What becomes clear from these verses is that the psalmist understands that what happened in Jerusalem at the defeat of the Assyrians' armies is just a starting point for what the God of Israel intends to do. It's just the beginning of what God will do for all the earth when his anger and wrath are fully roused. The judgment of God that fell on the armies of Assyria, the psalmist is saying, will one day cover all the earth. And this, the psalmist says, is good news, profoundly good news. This is a reason to praise God. Because as he puts it, when God's anger is roused, it is the wicked who are destroyed. And it is the humble who are delivered and saved. It does not come easily, I think, for the modern church in the West to praise God for his wrath and his anger. I think sometimes we're tempted to be a little embarrassed even about this aspect of God's character. But friends, this is where the scriptures help us and shape us in ways that are counter to our intuition or our preferences. They help us love and adore and praise God in ways that are truly faithful and truly wise. Because again and again, not just in this psalm, but throughout the scriptures, we find God's people not embarrassed by, but praising God for his judgment, for his anger, for his wrath against evil and his enemies. Listen, for example, to Revelation 16, what it tells us about the wrath of God. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. And worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers. And the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say. Just are you. O holy one. Who is. And who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, John says. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty. True and just are your judgments. Beloved, this is how the scriptures speak about the wrath and anger of God. They declare his judgments are true. His judgments are right. His judgments are pure. And that we are called to praise him and give thanks to him for those things. Beloved, I know 
that you know what it is to suffer injustice, to suffer at the hands of evil and wickedness. It is impossible to live in this world without that being the case. And I would suggest that this psalm and the scriptures as a whole teach you that what you need in that place of injustice is not only a God who promises you healing and grace and comfort. Yes, you need that. Yes, the scriptures give you that. But you also need the God whom this psalm declares to you. A God who rises up in anger and fury to defend his people. A God who promises that you are safe because he loves you so much that your suffering angers him. And in his wrath and in his fury, he will protect you. He will deliver you. And beloved, that is precisely the God whom the scriptures reveal to us. In Jesus Christ. The one who is called the Lion of Judah. The one who in his fury conquers evil and Satan and death so that you might praise him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks for your love for us, for the way in which your Son is indeed as a lion defending us, ruling over us, protecting us from our enemies and his. Father, grant us the grace we need to trust in his care and protection. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.